Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see everyone. Did uh, everybody enjoy the, uh, <laughs> I know you didn't enjoy what I'm about to ask, the day and a half of spring that we got uh, this past week? I know that you like winter and that your favorite movie's probably Frozen and all that, right? Let's, uh, but I always like when partway through um, the winter, you get one of those days or a stretch of days where all the snow melts, so the palette is cleared. So we're ready. If another storm comes, we don't have to pile it on top of the snow that we already had or anything like that. We're good to go. And uh, I was happy with that, although I was a bit uh, disappointed yesterday when I discovered that it was starting to feel quite frigid and quite chilly again. But I guess in the middle of January, what can you expect? But at least the Eagles won, right? You know, at least we have that. Um, now, <laughs> now, last week, uh, we started our look at the book of Jeremiah. And we're going to continue our look at the book of Jeremiah in coming weeks. And I want to say this uh, about the book of Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah is not a book that I hear very many sermons about. In fact, there's really like one chapter or really one section from the book of Jeremiah that, I, that really I ever hear quoted from, and it's usually from chapter 29. And I understand why people would quote from chapter 29. And if you don't know what I'm referring to at some point, take the opportunity to read through chapter 29 and you'll probably pretty quickly see it. But Jeremiah is not a book that's commonly spoken from, because when you're reading through the Old Testament, you start off with the books of the law, then you get to the books of history, and then you get to the books of poetry, and then you jump into the books of prophecy, and when you're in the major prophets and in the minor prophets, you see that there's a lot of things there that are said in very direct and forceful ways, where the Lord speaks to the people of Israel and Judah and says, listen, you're not following me as I've called you to follow me. I'm inviting you to repent and to come back to me, and if you choose not to, there are going to be consequences for going your own way. And the book of Jeremiah is one of those books that speaks about things very much in that respect. And so, uh, just a tiny bit of background. I shared a tiny bit about uh, Jeremiah last week, but I'll reiterate some of it. Jeremiah was somebody that the Lord called unto himself at a young age. We don't know exactly how old Jeremiah was. Some people speculate that when the Lord spoke to Jeremiah and said, listen, here's the mission that I have for your life. These are the things that you're going to do, things that I don't want you to be afraid to do, even if people try and intimidate you. Some people think Jeremiah might have been as young as a teenager at the time. Other people think that he might have been around the age of 30. I don't know exactly how old Jeremiah was, but I do know he was on the young side of life. And Jeremiah initially tried to give God some excuses. And, that's, and last week, that's what we were talking about. You know, do we give God excuses when the Lord asks us to obey Him in a particular area? And so Jeremiah tried to give God excuses like, Lord, I'm too young I am not an eloquent speaker. How am I supposed to speak on your behalf to the people? And the Lord said, listen, don't give me any excuses. Don't say you're too young. Don't say you can't speak. You're going to do what I told you to do, and I'm the one that's going to be the strength behind what you do. You don't have to rely on your own strength. You can trust in me that I will accomplish through your life what I choose to accomplish. And one of the things that we brought up last week is the fact that in this world, there tends to be a metric that people use to determine what's successful and what's not successful. And usually we want to see measurable results before we call something successful. And in Jeremiah's context, if you use that kind of metric to determine the success of his 40-plus years of ministry, you would probably not say he was a very successful prophet because in that time, it looks like only about two people ever came to a spot of repentance where they trusted in the Lord. Looks like there was about two people 
that ever responded to the message that Jeremiah was preaching. Everybody else ignored him. Everybody else hated him for preaching it. And it's also believed that at the end of his life, the way that he died happened to be when he was taken into Egypt, and in Egypt, the people that were sick of hearing his message there stoned him and buried him in an unmarked grave. So again, you would look at that and you would say, well, that sounds like a pretty sad way to live. And Jeremiah actually has a nickname that a lot of people use, and I don't know that it's the best nickname for him, but maybe you've heard people refer to Jeremiah as the weeping prophet. Because when you look at what he wrote down, it seems like his heart was clearly heavy. And also, he's also the one that the Lord used to write down the book of Lamentations. So you look at Lamentations or, and, you know, chop that word down, and what do you get? Lament. You know, it's the lament, right? As he's lamenting, people call him the weeping prophet. But I think it's also probably fair to call Jeremiah uh, a prophet who was a persistent prophet or maybe a faithful prophet as the Lord had called him to be faithful. Could you imagine spending your entire adult life seeking to do what the Lord had called you to do, but constantly being opposed by those you're trying to serve and constantly being ignored by those that you're trying to teach? And that's what Jeremiah did. Even though his heart was heavy while he did it, he, he continued to perceive, or uh, to just proceed to do what the Lord had called him to do for multiple decades as the Lord gave him the strength to do so. And this morning, we're jumping ahead now. So last week, we were in chapter 1. Today, we're jumping to chapter 3. And in chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verse 6 down to verse 18. And we're going to be talking about the fact that, amazingly, God still wants you back. And in this portion of Scripture, we're going to see the nature of God's loving heart, even as He's speaking through Jeremiah to a group of people that seem like they are intent on going their own way. But yet, as they're drifting from the Lord, the Lord makes it abundantly clear that He wants them back. So take your Bibles and open up with me to Jeremiah chapter 3. We'll be reading from verse 6 down to verse 18. And this is what it states in this passage of Scripture. Verse 6 says, The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there played the whore? And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. By the way, let me pause there before I read the rest and just say it's paragraphs like that that result in the book of Jeremiah not being preached on very much, all right? But we live on the edge here at Core Creek. So anyway, (laughs) look at verse 11. It says this, and the Lord said to me, faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look at you in anger, For I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree 
and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land, in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord, it shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for a heritage. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word, and thank you for the privilege that you've given to us today to be able to look at it together. And we pray, Lord, that as we look at this portion of Scripture, a portion of Scripture that very rarely gets spoken on, we pray, Lord, that by your grace that you'd help us to understand more about your nature and more about your will, more about your desires for us as followers of yours. And Lord, we pray that you would just help us to set aside all the things that sometimes get in the way of us being able to hear and listen. So, Lord, we pray that you'd speak to us now, teach us your word, draw us close to you through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. And we, we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in my early 20s, uh, I knew a couple that had been dating for several years. In fact, they had been dating prior to when I ever met them, and uh, they seemed to have, from all outside appearances, a very good relationship. Uh, it seemed like their relationship was healthy. It seemed like their relationship was strong. Uh, from what I saw, they spent a lot of time together. Uh, they seemed to enjoy each other's personalities. Their spiritual beliefs seemed to mesh. Everything from the outside looked fine. And then seemingly, out of the blue, the woman left her boyfriend for another man. And just as quickly on top of that, she ended up marrying the other man which puzzled all of us that knew them because none of us saw this coming, and it happened so abruptly. And at the time that this was taking place, my wife and I were dating, and we were getting near to the day when we were planning on marrying, and I couldn't help but wonder how I personally might react in that kind of situation if something so painful had happened to me that had happened to this man that I was friends with. Now, fast forward a few months after that, and we learned that the woman abruptly ended her, her marriage, and uh, she then, uh, and I, apparently what had happened was the man that she married was very abusive, was involved in some other sins, so she very abruptly ended the marriage. And not long after that, we learned that her previous boyfriend had accepted her repentance and taken her back. And again, I couldn't help but wonder what I would have done in a situation similar to that. And I also, and I'm just confessing this, I also felt slightly judgmental at how flighty and foolish that woman was starting to seem to me. Multiple times in Scripture, the Lord refers to His children as being His bride. So He speaks of, of Israel as being His bride. Uh, the church is spoken of uh, as, as the bride of Christ. Historically, the people that the Lord has called His own, people that the Lord has called as His own bride, historically, we have struggled to remain faithful to Him. We've wandered from him like a faithless spouse. 
we've been flighty and foolish. It's not just other people, we've been flighty and foolish. And yet, amazingly, God still wants us back. And when you look at this portion of Scripture that we're looking at today, it illustrates that very fact, and it illustrates some very interesting things about God's loving heart toward His bride. And one of the things that we see as a principle here that you can infer from the portion of Scripture we're looking at today is this. Spiritual unfaithfulness is something that's genuinely tempting. Well, what do I mean by that? Again, look at the first few verses we looked at. Look at verse 6, and then I'm going to jump down to verse 9, but it says this, "'The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, "'Have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel, "'how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, "'and there played the whore?' And then verse 9 says, "'Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, "'committing adultery with stone and tree.'" Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. Let's pause there for just a second. When I was younger, I used to think that grief was probably the worst form of pain. Uh, But then in time, I've, I've come to appreciate the painful nature of betrayal as well. There are a few things in this world that hurt quite as much as being abandoned or being betrayed or being left by somebody that you once trusted. Well, one of the things we learn about our Lord when we look through the Scriptures is that our Lord is not like an emotionless robot, right? Because His love for His family is genuine, He's also opened Himself up to being hurt by the unfaithfulness or the betrayal of His bride. And this portion of Scripture describes what that looks like in vivid image from God's perspective. And He uses very descriptive language. He uses very detailed language here. We're told here that Israel and Judah had been faithless, adulterous, and had practiced whoredom, as the Scripture describes it. This passage, uh, it talks about the fact that they had committed adultery on every high hill and under every green tree. We're told that they committed their, their sin with both stone and tree. Well, what does that mean? What's the Scripture getting at here as it describes these things? Well, in both the historical and in the prophetic portions of the Old Testament, we're told of some of the spiritual struggles of Israel and Judah. We know that they felt inferior to the nations that surrounded them, and even though they were warned many, many times not to do so, they ended up adopting many of the pagan practices of their unbelieving neighbors. They adopted those things as their own practices, and one of those practices was the worship of idols. They became adept at worshiping idols. That's what the Lord's speaking of here when he states that they committed adultery with stone and tree. He's speaking of spiritual adultery or spiritual unfaithfulness. He's talking about cheating on him with idols that have been made from from wood or from stone. And what happened was throughout the land, so throughout Israel, throughout Judah, the people would do things like they would set up these shrines for idols And they would set them up sometimes in elevated places. These places would be referred to in the Scriptures as the high places. And they'd have these idol shrines that they would would exchange worship of the true and living God for the worship of objects that had been made by craftsmen. And they would worship these idols in these high places. And they also adopted the pagan practice of sacrificing their children to these idols in many contexts. And what their hope was, they were hoping that these idols, that these false gods would bless them in some material way. They wanted to be blessed materially, and they idolized these false gods to the point that in many respects they had become adept at sacrificing their own children. 
And the image we're given of the nature of the, of the spiritual unfaithfulness that's being practiced by these people, sometimes when we look at these contexts, when we look at the high places, when we think of child sacrifice, when we think of stuff like that that they were involved in, I think sometimes in our context we might look at that and we might think that that seems a little bit irrelevant to us. Might look at like, you know, something that we can't imagine people doing right now. We can't imagine people worshiping something that a craftsman makes. We can't imagine somebody sacrificing their children. But the truth is, we're tempted every single day to do the same exact things that they did during that particular time, in that particular context. We just have a new twist on it in our day and age. So let me ask a couple things introspectively, lest we kind of, you know, cast aspersions on on the people living during Jeremiah's time without being introspective. What are you currently convinced has the capacity to make your life the best that it can be? What do you think will actually accomplish that in your life? Meaning, is there something in the material world that you're willing to sacrifice the majority of your time, the majority of your health, uh, the well-being of your children, uh, the resources that the Lord's entrusted to you because you crave whatever it is in this world that you think you need, like oxygen? You know, and in regards to our children, do we look at the children that, we, that the Lord's blessed us with, and do we sacrifice time with them or sacrifice their well-being in order to obtain whatever it is in the material world that we think will bring satisfaction to our wandering hearts? How often do you hear, particularly during the summer months here in, in Pennsylvania, stories of parents who have just kind of forgotten their children in a hot car while they go and gamble in a casino? Every summer, right? Here every summer. They get locked into that mindset. Kids are in the car, forgotten. Time goes by, they don't think anything of it. Or how many abortions are performed in our country because people fear the fact that if they raise children, that might have a negative impact on their lifestyle or their finances. I know I I saw a story just a couple months ago, I was reading it, and I won't say who it was, but you'd probably easily be able to figure it out. Um, one of the late-night talk show hosts, you know how they all have announcers, one of the announcers for one of the late-night talk shows that is currently on the air was telling a story about when he first got started in show business, and the gist of the story is how thankful he and his wife were for the abortion that they got at the time, because they're convinced that if they actually uh, had the child, that that would have inhibited their ability to build a career in Hollywood. So he said, I'm thankful that we had that abortion because that would have limited us financially if we had that child. It would have inhibited us from getting ahead in Hollywood. And I look at things like that and I think to myself, we just have a new twist on an old story. We still worship things created by craftsmen. We just don't call them spiritual things. We just call them material things. But yet the affections of our heart go toward those things, and we think, if I could just have that thing, somehow that's going to bring peace and satisfaction to my life. Or we think, you know, what am I willing to say? Well, I'm willing to sacrifice the relationships that the Lord's entrusted to me to get ahead in the material world. And we look at the things that were happening during Jeremiah's time, and we see that they are things that we are very much tempted to do right here and now 
as well. Spiritual unfaithfulness is genuinely tempting, not just for people that lived 2,600 years ago, but for every single person living on the face of this earth today. And I bring that up because, first of all, it's brought up here in this Scripture, but the Lord also tells us in this Scripture the remedy for it. When you look at this portion of Scripture, it reveals to us that the Lord mercifully invites us to return to Him. Look at what it says in verse 11 and following. It says, And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt, that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. What's the Lord saying here in this portion of Scripture? He's saying, I want to be reconciled to my children. I want, I want my children reconciled to me. Reconciliation, by the way, is a beautiful concept. Uh, it's very beautiful when it's practiced, but often pride or a lack of repentance gets in the way of it being facilitated. I, I happen to know in uh, my extended family two siblings who haven't talked to one another in years, and they refuse to reconcile. They don't want to reconcile. They don't want to be in relationship one with another again. I remember when I was growing up, there were three adult siblings that grew up on the same street that I was growing up on that I remember at one point over some very trivial matters, they decided to stop talking to one another, and they basically, all three of them, went their own separate ways for quite a few years, I would say at least 10, maybe 15 years, before they started to talk to one another normally. Again, that's a long time to wait. Now, when we're talking about reconciliation, we're talking about biblical reconciliation, to reconcile means to take something that's far away and to bring it near. So when you're reconciling, it means to take something that's far away and to bring it near. And we sometimes use that term, reconcile, when we're talking about things like financial statements in the sense of reconciling the data that we find in the books. But the deepest form of reconciliation that's spoken of in the Word of God is the reconciliation that takes place between God and man. And the passage of Scripture here that we're looking at today from Jeremiah, here it displays the Lord's deep desire to reconcile. And what he's doing here is he's looking at faithless Israel, and he's inviting them to return to him. He invites them to acknowledge their guilt, to embrace his mercy, and exchange their heart of rebellion for a heart of faith. That's what he's offering them the opportunity to do. And when you look at the Scripture and when you look at the totality of it, the merciful, reconciling heart of God has been extended to us as well. This isn't just a message that the Lord extended to, to Israel or, or to Judah to, you know, 2,600 years ago. The Lord invites us to be reconciled to Him as well. And I want to show you a couple of Scriptures that speak of it, even though there's quite a few. One is from Romans 5, verse 10, where it says this, "'For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son,' Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Now, let's pause there for just a second and look at that verse. Think about what that verse says about the state that we were in when Christ found us. Were we any different than the people of Israel or Judah in the sense of where our heart was in relation to God? 
I think a lot of times people think that prior to the Lord rescuing us, we were neutral or disinterested toward Him. And then when you look at what Scripture actually says, it says, you know, if you're living as someone who's neutral or disinterested in the Lord, effectively, you are an enemy of God. You're living as an enemy of God. You're living as one who is ignorant of the one who created you. And Scripture says we were enemies, and yet the Lord looked at His enemies with compassion and said, I want to be reconciled with them. And we're told us that we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Jesus Christ is the one who has accomplished this reconciliation. And the Scripture also tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, it says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled, so, you know, we were far away and He brought us near, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So, multiple times throughout the Scriptures, we see that the Lord's heart is to be reconciled with mankind. He doesn't want us living at a distance from Him. Scripture tells us that through Christ, we're reconciled to God, and then we're entrusted with the privilege to share the message of reconciliation to God through faith in Christ with anyone who is willing to listen, that that's a mission and a message that's entrusted to us because our sin was placed upon Christ. He bore it at the cross. He cleanses us of it. He now makes us righteous in His sight. And our relationship with God is restored through Christ. This is the work that He accomplishes in every person who repents of their rebellious unbelief and trusts in Him. And this is something that was being communicated in Jeremiah's time, but it's also something being communicated right now in our time as we meditate on the truth of the Scripture. But you know what? There's something that gets in the way of us being reconciled with God. And what gets in the way is the fact that we can be very, very stubborn. We can be stubborn because to be reconciled with God, it involves having to admit that you were wrong. I had to admit that I was wrong about God before I could be reconciled to Him. I had to admit that I needed Him before I could be reconciled to Him, and my own pride could easily get in the way, and your own pride could easily get in the way because we, generally speaking, are stubborn people. We're stubborn. But there's good news in this passage of Scripture, even related to our own stubborn hearts, and that's this. God's children won't be stubborn forever. Look at what it says in verses 15 to 18. It says, it gives us a picture of the future, just this outline of what the Lord has cooking. And it says, and I will give you shepherds after my own heart. So he's speaking of a future date here. He says, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land, in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord. And all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land I gave your fathers for a heritage. Let's pause there. Last week, my my, uh, daughter Julia, where are you, Jules? I saw you earlier. Yep. 
Julia asked me a question. I don't know if you remember the question. You'll remember in a second. But she said, Dad, do you have a picture of you when you were in kindergarten? So do you remember asking me that? Okay. So you could confirm I'm not making that up. All right, good. She said, Dad, do you have a picture of you from when you were in kindergarten? At first, I, I thought, I was like, I know a picture exists. I was like, I don't know, do I have it? Maybe someone in the family has it. I was like, I don't know, let me go downstairs. And I went downstairs, and I looked through a couple photo. Fo- actually, I picked the right photo album right away, so I looked through it, looked through a bunch of pictures, and I found a picture of me with my kindergarten teacher, Mrs. Durso. I can't remember my second grade and my third grade teacher's names. They don't come to my mind. Uh, my first grade teacher, I can remember her name. But my kindergarten teacher, Mrs. Durso, I found a picture. There it is. It's Mrs. Durso, and that's me. Now, I want you to focus in on that stylish coat that I'm wearing. Age five. That picture must have been taken sometime in the spring, so toward the end of my, my kindergarten year, uh, because that coat, I, I remember distinctly when I got it, it was my coat for Easter. So on Easter Sunday, when I was a child, you, you know, like you got a new suit, basically. And uh, my mom took me to Sears, and she said, all right, it's time for you to get a new suit. And she said, so I'll let you, I'll let you participate in this. You could help pick it out. Uh, but it's time for you to get a new suit. So we were looking at different suits, and then I came across that coat, that plaid coat, that really stylish plaid coat, and I said, found it, and I held it up to my mom, and she's like, oh, no, not that one, and I was like, no, 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 this is the coat. She's like, oh, honey, like, why, why do you want that coat? She's like, something, let's get you something solid. Like, you, you got navy blue pants. Let's do, like, a navy blue coat or something like that. I was like, I am not leaving Sears without this coat. And she's like, you've got to be kidding me. And it became a battle of the wills. My stubborn heart was on full display. And I was like, you said that I could pick it out. Here's the coat. It matches the pants. This is the coat that I want. And she tried her best to convince me to leave Sears with something different. I would not leave without that plaid jacket. And she's like, fine. And, and so after a while, she asked me, she's like, why that one? Like why, like, why are you insisting that it has to be this coat? And I said, very simply it will make me look like one of the Oak Ridge Boys. Now, I don't know if you know who the Oak Ridge Boys are, but they're a very popular country music group at the time. And I used to enjoy when they would come on TV and I would see them. And as a kid, I used to want to have a voice just like one of the Oak Ridge Boys. And apparently, one of the Oak Ridge Boys wore a plaid jacket in one of the most recent things I had seen of them. And if I got a plaid jacket, then maybe I could be like one of the Oak Ridge Boys. And so she put up with it because she liked the Oak Ridge Boys, and I wore the coat. And not only did I have it for Easter, but I think that's probably when I was finishing up kindergarten. I won't bore you with that picture staying up there. But anyway, I was stubborn. And I think that probably all of us can identify with seasons of our life where we would say, yeah, I've been stubborn. By nature, we can all be very stubborn people. But God's children won't be stubborn forever. When you look at this portion of Scripture, it directly tells us that. Your kids, if the Lord's blessed you with children, your kids might be stubborn right now. Even your adult children, they might be stubborn right now. Your spouse might be stubborn right now. This is the part of the message where everybody, oh, it happened. I didn't even get it out of my mouth. Everyone starts looking at their spouse, right? Your spouse might be stubborn right now. Your parents might be stubborn right now. 
But if we know Christ, we will not remain that way forever. This Scripture gives us a glimpse of the future, and it's a glimpse of the future that's also spoken of in other sections of the Bible, but it speaks of the time when Christ is going to return to this earth and visibly reign from Jerusalem. Do you ever think about that, Isaiah, I'll pick on you in the back because you have a prophetic first name and you spend most of the year living in Israel now. But like to think, so like you, I've never been to Jerusalem, you're there all the time now. Um, do you ever think about that? Like when you're in Jerusalem, like, you know, like the scriptures have said that Christ is going to rule and reign here, from here. I mean, it's got to be fascinating, you know, right there, like you're, you know, just see it and think, I know what's about to happen here. You know, like the Scripture, like I know what comes next in the story of this. And the Scripture here is it's describing the fact that Christ is going to visibly reign on this earth from Jerusalem. The family of God, it says, will continually be fed well and led well during that time. And during the time when this Scripture was being written, the Ark of the Covenant, so if you've, if you've ever read uh, the Scriptures related to the Ark of the Covenant, it's something that looked like a, like a box or a chest Uh, that has all sorts of uh, symbolic meaning, illustrating the presence of God with His people during the Old Covenant era. But during the time when the Scripture was being written, the Ark of the Covenant was the symbol of God's presence with His people. And it tells us here that during the time of Christ's earthly reign, it's not going to be necessary, it's not even going to be something that people spend time thinking about, because the Son of God, who is the, the, the one that the symbol of that Ark was pointing toward, is going to be visibly present. So, you don't need the, the, the type or the image or, you know, the example anymore when you've got the real thing right there in front of you. And the Scripture, along with other Scriptures, reveal to us that when Christ reigns, this earth will finally be at peace, and His family will no longer stubbornly follow the inclinations of their own evil hearts. Scripture tells us that the Lord's law is going to be written on our hearts, and we will trust Him, and we will follow Him joyfully. For those who are in Christ, this is the kind of glorious future that awaits us. It's described in the Scripture. But at the time that Jeremiah was writing these things down, This all seemed very distant. This all seemed very remote. And the people who were hearing this message weren't interested in it. They rejected Jeremiah's message. They were rejecting God's offer. This generation that Jeremiah was speaking to, they didn't want to have anything to do with the message that the Lord was speaking through Jeremiah. But again, even though people are often faithless, God remains faithful. And amazingly, He still wants His people back. As men and women who have been reconciled to Him through Jesus Christ, He invites us to live out and to proclaim the joys of reconciliation to Him through faith in Jesus. I think I've told you this story before, but I want to finish up with this today because something interesting has developed with it. But sometimes when I'm thinking about reconciliation to God, I also think about some of the relationships with people I've met during the course of my life that, that feel unsettled or feel unreconciled. And one of the big regrets I have in my life relates to an event that took place when I was a teenager. And again, some of you that have known me for a while have heard me tell this story probably multiple times, but I think it's fascinating that there's a new twist to it. When I was a teenager, I worked at a summer camp, and I remember... Uh, so I was about 18 at the time. It was the summer right before I started college. I was out in the outfield. We were playing softball, 
and it was the type of the summer, or the, the part of the summer where uh, you just feel extremely exhausted. It's hot all the time, and you're tired from working all summer long, and, uh, and you just, you're kind of on edge. And I remember at the time I was in the outfield, another staff member came and joined me in the outfield, and uh, he happened to be a brand new guy. He was too young technically to work at the camp, but the camp needed extra kitchen help. So they brought this guy on, and he had been whining. He was just being very whiny. And I was getting very sick of him being whiny because my patience was this thin. I, did, I was done with that. And he comes out into the field, and he's like kicking the dirt around, and, and he's just kind of being annoying and, and acting upset. And I was like, oh, it, he, if, he says, if he says one more thing, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow up. And he goes, he starts whining. He's like, I don't even want to be out here. And I'm like, okay, good for you. He's like, I don't even, even want to play this stupid game. And I was like, oh, he needs to zip it. And then he goes, I just want to go home. And I lost it in that moment. I was like, do it. I was, and he's like, what? I was like, just do that. I was like, just go home. I don't care if you go home. Go home. And he's like, looking at me, and I meant it. I was like, get out of my face. Go home. That was on a Friday evening. Guess what he did the next day? He went home. I never, see him, I, never, I never saw him up there ever again. And that's been on my conscience since I was 18 years old because I felt like, I effectively, like when you're 13 and an 18-year-old tells you something, you tend to put more weight on it than just about anyone else because when you're a young teenager, you tend to look up to an older teenager. And I told him, in my lack of patience, do it. Go home. My life would be great if you go home right now. Effectively, that's what I was saying to him. I always felt bad about that. A couple years ago, I was speaking for chapel at Cairn. It was at the same time I was teaching a class uh, in the mornings there. And after I spoke for chapel, a fellow professor came up to me and he said, hey, I want to challenge you to do something. And I was like, okay, what? And he said, well, you, I told that story about that kid. And uh, he said, I want, do me a favor. He said, people like that are easy to find now because of Facebook and stuff like that. He said, you should find them and you should write them a letter since that's been bothering you for all these decades. You should write them a letter. I was like, you know what? You're right. I should do that. I said, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that today. I promise I'm going to do that today. And I sent the, you know, my colleague, I sent him a, a message later in the day. I said, hey, I just want to let you know I did it. I wrote out my apology. I was very specific, and I sent it to him. And that was a little over two years ago. And unfortunately, I didn't hear anything, nothing, no response, until last Sunday night. Around 6.15 last Sunday night, I got a notification on my phone. And I was like, what is this? And it was during the worship service at Bluestone, but I wasn't preaching that night. So I, while Dylan was speaking, I cheated and looked at the notification on my phone, and I was like, what's this? And when I saw the name, I was like, oh, I, I have to know right now what this is. And I'm looking through, and I was like, oh, like I was expecting it to, I even prayed before I read it. I was like, I, this guy, like, if he says something harsh to me, I have to be prepared because I was really cruel to him, you know, 25 years ago. And I was like, all right, here we go. And I opened it, and I was like, wow. After a couple years, he responded to that message. And you know what he said in his response? He said, it's great to hear from you. He said, I remember that moment. He said, but I remember it totally differently. I remember it as me being extremely immature and being overly competitive in that game. And basically, I needed somebody to put me in my place. 
and I was too young to be working up there, and all this stuff. And he was very apologetic, and he said, please, don't let that be on your conscience. I had that coming to me. And I looked at that, I was like, well, that was a very kind and gracious response, but still, what I said was wrong. I should not have responded that way to him. But I got to tell you, you know what felt great? A lot of people have heard me tell that story because it's always really bothered me. I thought, wow, like this is something that's been on my mind for a couple decades. I've told it countless times because I genuinely feel bad about how careless I was with my words in that moment of stress. And by the grace of God, that friendship was reconciled. That story I've told a million times has a different outcome now. By the grace of God, that relationship has been reconciled. Two people who were far away have been brought near. And yet that's nothing compared to the reconciliation that God has offered us through His Son, Jesus Christ. So let me say this. I don't know where you are in your walk with Christ. I don't know if you just know about Him but don't know Him personally. But I will tell you this. Don't spend the next group of decades of your life at a distance from Him. Don't spend that time living as an enemy of God. Be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Go from being someone who lives at a distance from God to being somebody who's convinced that God is within you and around you, present with you each and every day. Don't spend decades unreconciled to God. And likewise, if you are reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ, practice and share the message of reconciliation. If there are people that are at a distance from you because of something in your past, be open to the Lord allowing you to reconcile that relationship. And be verbal in sharing with others the message of reconciliation that we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That our God looks at us with compassion and amazingly wants us back. That He looks at us who have been involved in spiritual unfaithfulness, thumbing our nose toward Him, and He wants us back. He doesn't want us at a distance. He wants us close. And He invites us to share the message of hope in Jesus Christ that reconciling message of the gospel, with anyone who's willing to listen. In Jeremiah's day, people were not willing to listen to him. And it very well may be that you'll experience times where you share that message of reconciliation, that hope that we find in Jesus Christ. That You might share that with somebody and they just tell you, listen, I'm not at a spot where I am interested in hearing that. You're not responsible with what they do with it but as people who have been reconciled to God through faith in Christ, we are responsible to make the message of reconciliation known. And He'll give us the courage to do it, the wisdom to do it, and the strength to do it as we trust in Him. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. And thank You for the privilege of being able to gather together this morning, worshiping You, looking at what Your Word states, thinking about the things that, that You bring to our mind in a portion of Scripture like this. And in the midst of all of it, Lord, we're amazed that You would look at humanity, that You would look at men and women who have spent years and years just ignoring You, and that You would invite us to be reconciled to You. Lord, You know our hearts this morning. You know that if there's, there's anyone in this room this morning who lives at a distance from You as if You aren't even real, as if You aren't involved, 
as if there is no future in you. Lord, you know where our hearts are at. But Lord, I pray that if there be anyone here among us who is at a distance from you because they have never received forgiveness through faith in your son, Jesus Christ, that today would be the day that their faith in Jesus would be inaugurated and that that reconciliation would be facilitated. And likewise, Lord, if there be anyone in our lives that we feel like reconciliation needs to take place, that you would facilitate it, that you'd work in our hearts, and as an outpouring of our appreciation for the fact that you have reconciled us to you, we pray, Lord, that we would be reconciled to others. And that that example of reconciliation that you foster in very tangible ways in our day-to-day lives would also be something that encourages us to share the message of reconciliation to you with anyone who's willing to listen. Lord, again, we're grateful for the privilege to be able to look at your word, to meditate on its content, and to think about these things today. Thank you for what you've allowed us to see. Lord, we pray that you would permeate our hearts with the truth of your gospel, and we're grateful for your love. We pray this all in Jesus' name.